Ever made a choice you later regretted? Ever made a choice in a non-committal way so that you could legitimately go in another direction if it seemed better to do so? Ever made a choice and immediately you have FOMO, fear of missing out because of that other option? I think we all have. Choices are commitments and we want to make the right ones. Good choices, good life. Today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 and the writer Peter is a man who has made the choice to make Jesus the foundation of his life. And he's writing to people who are followers of Jesus that need to be encouraged in that way. See, here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, we don't just make that choice, that decision once. As we experience life, we have to live out that decision and in a way make that decision over and over and over again. In the letter to the Hebrews, the people there are experiencing pressure because of their faith and they're tempted to go back. Peter, in a similar way, is writing to a people who are suffering and he wants to reassure them in their choice that it's the right one. Keep on making it. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We will never be disappointed for putting our trust in Christ. You're never going to say, oh, I'm so sad I made that decision. I was so foolish to trust in Jesus. It's just not going to happen. And yet these people are hurting, they're suffering. And you know how it is when you're hurting, when you're going through a difficult time, it's easy to doubt and start to waver in our decision. In my early 20s, a buddy and I, we planned to go from the West Coast, British Columbia, all the way down to the uh, Southeast Coast, Florida. And it sounded great at the time, really exciting. And then the day came and we started on the trip. Day one was fine, we went to Calgary, but day two we hit some, we hit some difficulty. I had a bike that didn't have a shield on it, no fairing, and it was a really windy day. And so uh, somewhere in Montana, I started to get a pinch in my neck and it really hurt as my head bobbed, straining against the wind. When we stopped for supper that night, I was really discouraged. I took out a map, and I looked at where Florida was, and it was like way down there. And I looked at how far we'd gone for the day, and it was like this little teeny amount. And we still had that far to go. So on the spot, I started to waver on my commitment. And I tried to talk my buddy into going to Yellowstone Park. It's really nice. California's great. And hey, it's only a third of the distance. I'm ashamed of that now, but it was tough. And I was wondering whether it was really worth it to go the distance to Florida. Going the distance with Jesus, Peter says, it will be worth it. He says, it stands in Scripture. Your belief is based in something that was purposed in God since time began. It was spoken of by the prophets, written down, and carried out in complete faithfulness as God gives us Jesus. Again, as Peter has said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Zion refers to Jerusalem, and I was there a year ago, November, at an archaeological dig. There are these massive stones. They're unearthing a, a wall to a building there. And the corner of those walls is called the cornerstone. And it is, has to be a stone that's rightly shaped, perfectly shaped, and because the rest of the wall is going to be built around it. Like everything is structured and oriented towards that stone. Peter says Jesus is that. He's the cornerstone. His work is massive. His person is perfect. And we are to build, we are to structure our lives, orientate it completely towards him, on him. The word cornerstone is also used in the sports world metaphorically. 
Sometimes they'll refer to a player as the cornerstone to the organization. He's so good, the team will draft other players and structure their strategy according to this player. So gifted, so unique that their very presence is a game changer and makes victory possible every time. Jesus is that game changer. God has ordained it so that our lives would be built upon him, that he would be our cornerstone. Earlier, I'd asked the question, have you ever made a choice that you later regretted? Well, I'd like to ask the question, have you ever made a choice that later you found out it was way better than what you expected? That's what Peter's letting us in on now. So we go to verse 4. He says, And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Something amazing happens when we choose Jesus, when we place our trust in him. It sets into motion all these mind-boggling consequences that are good. And that's why the message of Jesus is called the gospel, the good news. Peter reminds us that when we are placed in Christ, what is true of him becomes true of us. As he is the living stone, although rejected by men, precious and chosen by God, so it becomes true of us. We are called living stones. We abide, we live in that life of God. We've been born again to a new life, Peter has already said earlier. And then Peter goes on to tell us something amazing that God wants to do in our life. We are being built up into a spiritual house. Now that language may seem strange to you. That's Old Testament language. It's referring to the temple. The temple was the place where God met with his people. So think God's presence. He is building us into a place, a habitation of God's presence. If you're in the Old Testament and you you thought to yourself, I want to go meet with God, you'd have to go to Jerusalem. You'd have to go to Zion and and go to the temple and go through all the protocol. But today, God is saying, I'm building you into that place. You're the location where God meets together, us together, the church, become the location of God's presence. Peter goes on. He says, to be a holy priesthood. Now, again, when you hear those words, maybe it doesn't land that well for you. Like, I don't want to be a priest. You have an image in your mind of a, a guy with a collar, maybe a long robe. He lives in an old church, and he really has no idea of what's going on in reality. He lives in a religious bubble of irrelevance. Let me help you with that. Think of the person you really admire, other than family. Maybe your mom and dad came to mind right away. Kudos for that. But think of someone you really admire that's out there. Chances are maybe it's a famous musician, an elite athlete. And that person, of course, because they're so loved, so famous, they're almost like untouchable. You can't get to them. You have no access to them. And yet you really admire them and you just think within yourself, I'd really like to be in that inner circle with that person, to really know, to have access dialogue. Is there any other person we'd rather be in the inner circle with than with God? To be able to come into his presence? That's the priesthood. See, the priesthood were selected. They were distinct. They were different. To be those who would minister to God, to come to God and represent God to the people. They were the go-between. And you didn't select this for yourself. It's not like you could choose to do it. You were chosen for that, to be a holy priest. God's inner circle, approaching God, representing him to the people. Now listen to what Peter is saying. When you choose Jesus, you are chosen. 
When you choose God, you are chosen to be one of the holy priesthood. You are chosen to be one of his inner circle that has access to God, that ministers to God and represents him to the world. This is not just for people who are pastors, paid Christians. No, this is true of every person who believes in Jesus Christ. So today, if you're an electrician, you're a priest of an electrician. If you're a teacher, you're a priestess of a teacher. If you're a student, you're a priest of a student. If you own a business with 500 employees, you're not just a business owner, you're a priest of a business owner. I hope you get my drift. There's no distinction. There's no hierarchy within the Christian church. The only distinction is between those who have rejected Jesus and those who have said yes to him, who have embraced him. And for those who've chosen Jesus, they become the chosen with access to God and the privilege of serving him and representing him to a world that desperately needs him. You are a priest. Never let it be said of a Christian that when they speak of their role or their occupation, they say, well, I'm just a... No, don't forget. Whatever role you're in, whatever place that God has you, there you are a privileged priest. Peter goes on. He tells us in verse 7 and 8 that nothing can thwart God's promises. So although people have rejected God, they rejected Jesus, God still made Jesus the cornerstone, the most important, the one to build our lives on. And for those who rejected him, this Jesus then becomes a stumbling stone. They disobey him, and that's their lot in life. But for us, listen what Peter has to tell us in verse 9. Like, it just keeps getting better and better. This is way better than I knew when I first said yes to Jesus. Peter says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's like Peter is starting to go rapid fire when he talks about all that God has made us to be. You say, when we, when we, when we say yes to Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in him, our identity changes. And this is what he makes of us. We are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We are a people for his own possession, a royal priesthood. Where did Peter get this kind of language? Did he pull it out of thin air? No, and this is what I love about the Bible. It's one unified story. Peter is going all the way back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, where God speaks to his people and says this to them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter is going all the way back to God's intended pur purpose for these people that he had called so long ago. See, we may waffle in our decisions. We may not follow through on our commitments, but that's not the way it is for God. God is restoring the purpose that he had for his people and as we are now the people of God in Jesus Christ, he's calling us and he's choosing us and he's placing within us his purpose that existed way back. In fact, you could say that it goes way back to Adam and Eve. That language of royal priesthood exists right in the first chapter of Genesis where God tells the original couple to take dominion and rule and then serve in the garden. That's priestly language. God keeps his commitments. He has a purpose for us that he's restored in Jesus Christ and takes us right through to the end in the book of Revelation where it says we're going to rule and reign with him and we'll be a kingdom of priests. Amazing. We are a royal priesthood. In his book, Rediscovering the Kingdom, Miles Monroe says, Jesus is the example, the prototype of what God desires for all his children. 
He wants us to be like Jesus, kings and priests in the world. Kings to faithfully represent his government and execute his authority on the earth. He wants us to be priests who will represent his love, grace, and mercy to a world of people stumbling in the darkness with no knowledge either of him or of his kingdom. We are a royal priesthood. God is restoring his intention for us in the beginning, taking it through to our lives now and right through into the life that is to come. Royal priests. One of the functions of a priest, most importantly, was to bring gifts of sacrifice to God. Gift giving was never something I've been very good at. It just doesn't enter into my mind naturally. I hate it when somebody invites me over for dinner, they make this great gourmet meal and I appear empty handed. It just hadn't occurred to me and I'd scheduled myself so tightly that I didn't have time to pick up that thoughtful gift that says, hey, I thank you for this. I appreciate the hospitality and all the work that you've gone to. In 1 Peter 2 verse 5, when Peter's talked to us about being a holy priesthood, he says this, for this reason, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Priests did not appear before God empty-handed. They had something to bring him. Now today, we don't have to offer up animals as sacrifices. Jesus has taken care of that. He offered himself up once for all to take away all the penalty and, and, and consequences of our sin. But in the New Testament, we are told that we can still offer up spiritual sacrifices. It's not that they're mystical. It's not that they're not concrete or, or practical. It's just that they're animated. They're propelled and directed by the Spirit. We see here in Peter's writing, one of the things that first kind of jumps into our mind when he talks about it in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is one of the sacrifices we are told that we can give. In Hebrews 13, 15, he says, through him then, speaking of Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. The picture is of a people who are talking, speaking, declaring, singing all the excellencies of God, all the great things that they can think about him and all the great things that he has done. And they're just, they're just filled with that and it bubbles out of them, not just in church, but wherever they go. And yet I know that for some of you watching today, that's just not where you're at. You're just not there. It just doesn't come naturally for you. And sometimes when you look at other believers and you see their exuberance and the praise that comes out of their lips so spontaneously, you think, is there something wrong with me? Or is there something wrong with them? You know, personally, I don't always feel like praising God. There are times when I'm going through difficulty and problems and praise is the last thing on my lips. But here's the thing. This is when it really becomes a sacrifice, isn't it? A sacrifice is costly. When we don't feel like doing something and we do it, it becomes a sacrifice that's most acceptable and pleasing to God. And Peter reminds us that there's a great reason to do this. Your sacrifice is based on truth. There's a greater reality that's going on that gives us every cause to sacrifice praise to God no matter what we're going through. And that is this, remember? He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whenever I'm struggling with the lack of praise and gratitude and worship in my life, one of the best things that I can do is to rehearse the good news, to rehearse the gospel 
of what God has done for me in the person of Jesus Christ. I was in darkness, but now I exist in light. He goes on in verse 10. We were not a people, but now we are a people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Oh, we were without a relationship with God. We were separated from him. We had no right to him. But God, through Jesus Christ, made it possible for both Jew and Gentile to be the one people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his possession. And as I reflect and as I think on this, my lips start to, start to utter his praise. And I want to give my whole life for him who gave his all for me. And we see in scripture that this is actually the kind of sacrifice that God is looking for. In Romans, Paul has written for 11 chapters about the good news of Jesus Christ. And then when he gets to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To give God praise, to give him everything we are in light of all that he is and what he's done for us is just the right thing to do. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, right after it's talked about offering up the sacrifice of praise, says something very practical. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I hope you get the picture. We are a royal priesthood. We have gifts to bring God, not for our sin, but because gratitude flows out of us because of who he's made us to be. And who he is. And we want to give our whole lives to him. Just as priests, we're completely dedicated to the service of God. We want to give our whole lives to him in service to him. Because he has done so much for us. Choose Jesus over and over again. Know your identity. Who God has made you to be. When you choose Jesus, you are chosen. And live out your identity. Sacrifice. Though it costs you everything, live out who you are, a royal priesthood. Remember my bike trip to Florida? Well, we made a decision that day to keep on with our first decision. And we, saw, we, made, we made our way, and I believe God must have been in it, because we got there to the Florida border in six days, and we rested on the seventh. And it was amazing. Uh, we met some great people. We had great sunshine, great weather. There was variety, Disneyland, Epcot Center. We got down to the beautiful Florida Keys. It was so worth it. Go the distance with Jesus. It will be so worth it. At the end of this letter, Peter writes to us to encourage us. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.